Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Coffee and Circuses. This week we're hitting a new low on the show, and I don't just mean with my bad jokes, as I'm joined by Dunstan Lowe from the University of Kent. In this show, Dunstan talks about the concept of ugliness in the ancient world and how it compares to today, especially in modern film. Why were some scars considered admirable and others shameful? What does it mean to wear a mask? Why is it all really just about power? He also discusses the reception of the ancient world in computer games. How are ancient cultures represented in this medium? How could this be incorporated into the curriculum? Do we really want them to be as realistic as possible? And why have I still not finished Red Dead Redemption 2 after all this time? We also discuss what led him to focus on these research avenues, passing like ships in the night at Reading a decade ago, where the word syphilis comes from, and what his beat-em-up of choice was growing up. So, as always, thanks for joining me, and... Round 1. Fight! Yes, one of them is off sick from nursery today, uh, but otherwise, um, they're very well. Yes, they're walking now, so oh, things are going to get a lot more tricky. But there's always new challenges, and it's it's good to see them getting on well. Yeah, and it's the summer, which means that things are a bit more flexible. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. For example, you can take them outside more, so that's nice. Yeah. I was wondering, like, because obviously in your situation, do you think the kids are going to grow up like automatically, like compiling or trilingual with like Latin and Greek? Are you, <laughs> are you planning to expose them I've, to it at a young age, or are you? People have asked me that before. <laughs> well, there was a famous philosopher. I forget who it was. I'm sure an ancient philosopher could tell you who was um, something of a child prodigy and was raised uh, knowing Greek and Latin from an early age. And I think it was John Stuart Mill, and he uh, fast tracked. Straight to mental breakdown in his oh, well. late teens. So, um, <laughs> yes, it was a bit much. Um, and no, I don't think we'd be doing anything too experimental with them. Uh, in a way, it's nice if, if uh, people don't do what their parents did yeah. exactly, because um, then they can be themselves. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. However, you do hear of academic dynasties. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just see how it goes. I suppose, though, like, it's, uh, it's one of those things as well that is quite handy, I guess, for kids to be exposed to other languages and things from, from a young age. Yes. A friend of mine who's, um, his dad's Spanish, so he grew up in a, in a bilingual house with English and Spanish. It's so weird because I knew him for a few years and then, then suddenly, like, one day he spoke on the phone to his dad and you just did it in Spanish. And it was so unusual, like, knowing somebody like that and suddenly, like, he just suddenly just starts speaking in Spanish, like, completely fluently. But obviously, as I say, because he just kind of grown up with that in the background, you just don't think of it. It's just interesting. I mean, obviously, I did languages at school, but it, uh, sometimes I just wonder about what it must be like actually being in a situation with having other languages around at a mm. young age, like having it kind of filter into you. Yes, yeah. well, there are colleagues here that speak more than two languages. Yeah. And... um Yes, it's um, strange to imagine because we tend in this country to learn languages um, at a later age. I think for the really authentic accent, you need to learn it when you're very small. Yeah. Um, but you can still pick up everything you need at a later age. It's just that, you know, that, that um, accent is the hardest thing to get, uh, get completely um, thoroughly. But if you learn a language like ancient Greek or Latin, then you aren't being expected to speak it in no. any, any particularly... Uh, authentic accent at least i don't expect that from my students yeah. um and so you can uh take on every other aspect of the language quite uh, quite thoroughly so people get very proficient at languages at a late age yeah. um sometimes in their retirement well i mean previously uh on the on the podcast a couple of weeks ago i had alex on who did a dissertation with you uh, she's she did, come back yes. as a mature student to academia and has actually loved it absolutely loved learning latin and 
fantastic here. Which is great, yes. Yeah, any, yeah. We welcome any student that's uh, enjoying it and um, dedicated enough to thrive. So, yes. Yeah. Um, but I think, great. I was going to say, I think Alex is a really good kind of advertisement as well, just as you're kind of saying, the idea that it's it's never kind of like too late to pick up things like that, to pick up skills like that. No. Um, we're talking about obviously learning at a younger age, but yeah, I mean, you can, you can start learning a language or, or millions of other things coming back and say as a mature student, like, because she's loved it and she's got so much out of it. So yeah, great advertisement for, for the subject. Yes, mature students are often the most interesting one to teach um, because they have um, a background and um, other than the the most common one. And it can be trickier to fit things in around your life. So if you're working or um have family commitments. Um, mature students have extra challenges sometimes. But on the other hand, they have the skills as well. So mm -hmm. in fact, they're a lot less um, prone to ask for help, even if they really need it. So um, that's that's one of the things to bear in mind. I know a, a person who works at uh, the Open University that has lots of mature students um, okay. taking degrees there. And they have a, the equivalent of our concessions uh, meeting where they discuss cases of students that have factors outside their control that have interrupted their studies and um, what to do about it. And um, most of the time, she said, by the time they, they bring something up and they say, actually, there's this factor that's interrupting my studies, um, it's usually something pretty extreme. So they immediately say, wow, OK, we're going to have to take that into account. But um, I think uh, students from all different backgrounds is, is a good thing to have. And that includes age, yeah. so, you know, age, gender, type of education, nationality. Yeah, it's all, it's all enriching. Yeah. Usually I come around to the whole, how did you get into ancient world studying what you do a bit later on? But actually, that's quite a good segue from what we were talking <laughs> about to discuss okay. it with you. So we'll get on to like talking about kind of various research avenues a little bit later, uh, particularly sure. gaming. Um, but just quickly then, how, but how, how did you end up coming to, to, to particularly like Latin and also Greek as well? Um, oh, right. Well, what, what drew you to the, to the subject? Well, when I was in primary school, I liked the Romans mm. and the Greeks and, but also, I liked Norse myth and um, all kinds of other things as well. So it didn't really um, stand out. Um, although, if I think back, I did have one particularly good book, which is still in my office, which is, um, uh, it was Evans and Millard, uh, the Osborne book of uh, Greek and Norse myth. And it has fantastic illustrations. And um, so it could have been, <laughs> it could have been one or the other. But then the real reason I started doing Latin was because my school offered it, and it was either that or German. So I decided to do the Latin. And um, turned out to be quite good at it, so I just stuck with it because I was getting decent marks. So um, that's not a very, <laughs> it's not, a, not a, a wonderful kind of superhero origin story or anything. Um, but um, I, I really um, grew to appreciate it once I got good enough to read original uh, Latin literature and kind of appreciate it, because all the language learning is a means to an end uh, with ancient languages. It's so that you can access the ancient material and uh, really understand it for yourself. Mm. Um, that's when it gets really good. So sometimes there's kind of a beginning phase where it's just grammar. Um, and for some, that's very satisfying. But I always thought it was just something to get through. Out of interest, when you were at school, yeah. did they have the Cambridge Latin course then? Or was it a different thing? No, the... we had a different one. Um, okay. it, it's probably a bit vintage now. Um, it was called Ecce Romani. And it was very similar. C is the Romans, <laughs> translation. But it's very similar. It had a family. They told their story. And there's a slave. And... Um, he gets beaten up in the street one time and everybody was very pleased about that because of his very repetitious conversation. You can imagine uh, when there's very limited vocabulary, it's all the same. Yeah, but it's um, I think it's a good idea for those texts to follow a family and people really get to appreciate them. Like Caecilius is yeah. like a celebrity. Um, and when I was on a joint trip to Pompeii with it was my school and it was um, 
Bristol Grammar School and they were doing um, Cambridge Latin course, they made kind of a pilgrimage to the house that is uh, where, where the original Caecilius lived and had their picture taken outside. And it was a mad dash in the rain to get there, but it was very important <laughs> to them. Uh, yeah, and then now for, for younger kids, there's Minimus. And that's the same principle. That's mm. a mouse, but he lives in Roman Britain. So yeah. same thing. You have, a, you have a narrative to follow. It's funny how those things, like you say, the kind of the, there's the kind of recurring way of going about it. There's something about, as you say, something about story that makes it very attractive to follow. I did I did yeah. the Cambridge Latin course, and I, I still remember now, like, Caecilius and Quintus and uh, Bregans and all the, all the various <laughs> characters. As yeah. Quintus, like, travelled around as well, post, uh, post-Pompeii. Oh, those are the days. <laughs> it's interesting how it sticks for you, like, even after all it those does, years. yes. So you went on afterwards. You did your... Undergraduate at Birmingham, right? That's and right. Then yes. you did PhD. I also did a, um, a MPhil there, so a master's degree. Yeah. And then after four years, I went to um, Cambridge for a PhD. And then did you go straight after that to teaching at Reading, or what yeah. years were you teaching at Reading? Uh, I think I started in two thousand. Let's see, two thousand six. I think. Uh, okay. Um, so just at the very end of my PhD, yeah, there was a small gap. I don't think I quite submitted, yeah. um, but I did in the first term. I started there, and then I was there for a good. Five or six years. Yeah. I was going to say, because in 2006, I started as an undergraduate wedding. <laughs> I know you had a background there too, yes. I, yeah, uh, we must have moved up a little bit, yeah, possibly. We've got yeah. fast like ships in the night, because I did, I did ancient history and archaeology, mm. but obviously like you know, you, you end up doing modules in archaeology. And I remember doing, I can't really remember, the, I can't remember the first year that well, to be honest, um, for various reasons. But um, I remember, <laughs> usual reasons, I yeah, I remember, uh, I remember second year and third year. I don't, I don't recall you ever teaching me, but then I don't know if I necessarily, were you teaching modules at the time that were quite like what you do now, like all research now, like Virgil, Ovid, that kind of thing? Um, yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. There was an epic module, there was one on Roman love poetry that I taught. Um, I did have a monsters module as well mm-hmm. um, that was based on my main research project and I also taught one here um, which was a bit more developed because I've been doing it for a few more years yeah. but yeah it was mostly Latin literature that I got to, talk, to teach and also um, Latin language yeah so probably you were taught by people that I knew quite well yeah um, is there anybody in particular you remember uh, is it David Carter uh, oh yeah, yeah no, I, re- yes. I remember him from first year yes and him being very scary really? uh, well <laughs> did you know that he had for a while been a school teacher Oh, really? I yeah. can see that, actually. Um, he's very committed, very committed to teaching, and that's part of the reason. Um, but his, he's also, um, I think he went on to uh, administrative roles, so, you know, um, an important part of the machinery, but also um, his main research interest was Greek political thought. And, um, yeah, that was also very interesting. And he pointed out at one, at one conversation that there was Aristotle... On Aristotle's politics was being taught in our department, but also in the politics department, and also in some other departments as well. There were three different places, and they had no re- idea of each other. Yeah. Could have an Aristotle um, like network going on. Absolutely, like hubs that are created. Yeah, because yeah, I remember in second year doing a module on, I think it was Egypt in the Romano. Yes, world. That module. Yes. And then in my last year, the module I did for ancient history would have been. Constantinople, or it was about Constantine and Constantinople, which has kind of clearly had some sort of knock-on effect. <laughs> that was actually my best model. I, did. I really enjoyed that. Um, well, there you go. Yeah, well, if yeah, you try yeah. something, then you end up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's I mean, my story. So, yeah, not, not overly different because it's always been the late antique stuff seems to be where I do the best. I don't know why, but it just seems to be that way. It's funny. It's a bit of a feedback loop that if you're good at it, then you do well in it. If you do well at it, then you're then you're good at it. You know, it's yeah. you, I mean, what I mean is uh, you like it, and then you do well in it. 
repeated myself. Just yeah, so liking something makes you good at it and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, I spoke with Ellen before about this when she's the very first episode and we were pondering whether or not, particularly with late antiquity, how many people who work in that field and, and do perhaps particularly well at it are people that have some sort of background that involved Christianity in some way. Um, both yeah. of us are from family backgrounds with quite a strong Christian presence, although neither of us would really identify in that way anymore. But it's right. quite interesting that that kind of feeds in because you kind of grow up very much already aware of like the church and Latin being, I mean, in my case, it was Catholic. So, you know, it was like the use of Latin in church, not really that much anymore, but all, you know, the kind of institutions and stuff like it's, it's stuff that from a young age you're kind of aware of. And then kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about being exposed to stuff and how it maybe filters through and maybe yeah. doesn't necessarily, doesn't mean I grew up wanting to be a priest, but, <laughs> but at the same time, it kind of maybe has had a lasting impact on me because that kind of particularly, research-wise, where I've ended up focusing on, you know, this transformation from so-called paganism to Christianity. Mm. It's clearly something that's kind of in my subconscious that's knocking around in this. Yes, I think there's often something like that um, that explains for some, somebody's um, research interests. I think in my case, my parents um, weren't academics at all, but um, mm. they did study, one of them studied history, the other one studied English literature, including early English literature, and I think maybe... Um, they might have made chance remarks about things in the past that sounded interesting, and mm. you know that might have had a had an effect. Um, although I'm not really, I'm a bit wary of this theory that there's a, there are kind of psychological reasons why you're interested in yeah. what you're interested in because <laughs> because I did my PhD on monsters, and uh, <laughs> so that means that I might have uh, you know some. <laughs> horrifying you know <laughs> massive problems that make me fascinated by the abnormal and the grotesque well, um, i suppose everyone's got that to some degree that's think, why uh, horror think, films yeah, are I so mean, uh, so successful i think everybody likes absolutely the yeah. idea of being scared or made to feel slightly mm. uncertain about things and there's i don't know there's that risk that i mean like you look nowadays at um the success i think of uh, like true crime documentaries and podcasts yeah. that i mean that sort of thing is very strange because of the fact that you're actually talking about real crimes that are committed. It's the sort of thing that really, when you think about it, should people really have an, should it really have an appeal? But, mm. you know, I find myself watching stuff like that and, mm. and you get kind of engrossed in it. And I think the aspect of it, the, the thing that really attracts people to it is the fact that much like horror movies, it's kind of scary, but it's kind of scary in a very real way because you're like, Oh, that actually has happened. And, but you're safe yes. at home and you feel protected. It's, in, it's interesting how that appeals to people. Yeah, and it's also a we're all curious people, and something like that, something really kind of unsettling, uh, lets you um, explore and and think about human nature um, in a in a broader way. You know, something outside your own experience, I assume, usually. So it's a a voyage, you know, out into the unknown, and then of course you can comfortably come back out and mm. uh, and reflect on it. Is your work on monsters then what's kind of led you down this more recent route? Because you're looking uh, recently at kind of the idea of the grotesque, is it, in in Roman society? Oh, like, uh, yes. Uh, well, ugliness. Yeah, ugliness. Yes, yeah. Um, um, Something I'm well acquainted with. Because I do a podcast, not a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um, definitely related because they're both about bodily, bodily abnormality. But the ugliness thing is a bit more of a social history. Mm -hmm. And... I think it's still got lots of literature in it, but it's a bit broader. And I'm interested in looking at different types of evidence. So Monsters was mainly about um, mythological monsters. Mm. So you've got poetry and maybe a few images in the creative arts. But if you talk about 
people's appearances, then there are lots of representations of of uh, individual humans. And I'm very interested in the idea of uh, caricatures and and uh, the grotesque and selective exaggeration and um, people defining what's normal by making things the opposite of that. Mm. So it's really about power structures. So if you accuse somebody of being ugly, then implicitly you're not um, like that. Mm. And you're kind of making them the out group. And therefore you and anybody else that's listening to you or, or agreeing with you is the in group. And so if you, if you marginalise things, you push them out, then you're defining a nice little safe area in the middle, which is normal. And um, that's reassuring. And if you accuse somebody of being ugly, then you're putting them down and um, establishing a relationship which could be about um, age, um, class, gender, ethnicity, all kinds of different interesting social um, factors which help us to rebuild what life was like in the Roman uh, or ancient Greek and Roman imagination. And therefore, if you figure out what, what ugliness was then, you find how different it is from ugliness now. Mm. For one thing, ugliness must have been much more common. The way that we th- think of things as ugly, we're talking about an age before modern dentistry, modern hygiene, surgery that's safe and uh, and minimal. So in an age of uh, warfare, where loss of eyes is quite common, or um, where the symptoms of hard work and age would cause problems that could be treated now uh, with orthopaedics and surgery, so hunchback and club foot there are lots of things which we don't really have now uh, which would have been quite common just think about hygiene for example in ancient greece and ancient rome they didn't have soap they had other forms of cleansing which weren't routine not daily and um they also had if you're thinking about cosmetics or or uh, or wigs or, or anything like that the options were much more limited and a lot less convincing so um it was it was much harder to curate your appearance and and alter the way you looked. So, yeah, I, I'm inclined to think that the definitions had to be rather different. And uh, Well, they have, they, I guess they would have also changed over time. Obviously, the Roman period, the commoners, is mm. a very long period. And teaching, as I've done here, Roman on architecture, you obviously see the big shifts that occur in sculpture, but you go from mm. the, the verism of the kind of warts and all, like really projecting age and experience and Republican sure. uh, portraiture to the kind of youthfulness and the kind of Alexander-like... Augustus and then you know obviously these no one art style I don't think ever goes away they're all kind of existing but some become more prominent than others and then some move into the background again do you find that there is much of a change in those kind of norms do people can you detect like over time ideas of beauty and ugliness altering or do they seem relatively consistent at what you looked at well I think they must have changed and um, perhaps not as rapidly as ours do for example people could probably imagine what um if you're, if you're taking a kind of stereotype of an attractive woman, uh, a 1950s beauty, a 1920s beauty, a 1980s beauty, um, and then one now, uh, if you put them all in a row, they'd be very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could even pick them apart. Um, mm-hmm. Not just about what they're wearing, but the, you know, their very physiology. And um, if you do that in antiquity, I think you probably find uh, trends changed. But all we can look at is, is portraiture, really. So we can look at art styles changing. And that, that tells you something. But female beauty is a really interesting um, strand in, in the idea of ancient ugliness because the stereotypical beautiful woman and um, the sculptures which are considered to be the most beautiful portray a different kind of physiology from uh, from what we now consider beautiful. Yeah, it's um, 
we are kind of limited to the artwork. Um, but I just remember there is a way you can step outside that and you can look at osteoarchaeology and um, other mm. forms of physical remains of humans. And um, so we can we can tell things about, for example, dentistry or broken bones or, um, well, lots of other aspects of, of people's appearance, which lets us uh, reconstruct what people did actually look like. Um, yeah. So you say things like... Um... Where people have got vitamin deficiencies and obviously affects yep. the way they grow and their body shape and absolutely study that their now. skin yeah 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 and it's interesting some of the stuff that we would as you say would probably consider um today to well i mean it's obviously very subjective but you know like the, some of the things that that come with like deficiencies mm. probably would be much more common in the in the ancient world ergo they're much more common to people consider them as being kind of ugly or do they just consider them the norm which is not you know, yeah. i suppose because i suppose when i think of ugly i think of in my mind, it's something that really stands out as being grotesque. Mm. I, sp- I, I suppose there's a difference between unattractive and ugly, if that makes sense in my in my mind. Yes, yeah, sure. And it's all uh, they're all spectrums. Yeah, yeah. But there are you can think of lots of other periods in history where things like uh, frequency of a certain type of illness would affect what was considered beautiful, um, and you know whether it was if it was hard to stay out of the sun then. Paleness tends to be more uh, attractive, mm. um, or if it's hard to to get in the sun, then a tan is attractive. And yeah. um, you know, there's a certain amount of um, rarity value for the things that are hard to achieve um, in your appearance. And um, just going back to this idea of um, uh, disfigurement, there's the famous fashion in the when was it 17th century? I'm betraying my ignorance here. For for those little um, uh, black. Um, beauty marks oh, yeah, you know, to, yeah. to cover over smallpox scars. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, like where you get the very kind of, is it like the very kind of Georgian appearance with the yes. wig and the powder face? Lots of powder, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. okay. obviously another thing that would have affected people in the past is, is syphilis as well that affects like your face, that can affect your facial features. And yeah, that's an interesting one actually. Yeah. Syphilis did not appear until much later, yeah. uh, much, just, much after antiquity, it was uh, yeah. transmitted from from um, camels to humans, and by means which we won't speculate on too much. Uh, <laughs> but it, they, it appeared in the um, well, we can date it. There's a, there's a specific um, century, and again, I'm revealing my ignorance, but I think it's Renaissance or perhaps Quattrocento mm. or, or something. There's an early um, uh, Neo-Latin um, poem which actually gave syphilis its name. Syphilis was a character, and it was a it was a kind of, um, I guess, a sort of a, a play on um, on the idea of a, an illness that is a indication of, of kind of sexual activity. Yeah, and it's because of a poem in Latin that, that the name syphilis actually uh, really? stuck. It, it had other names when it first appeared. I think it was called the Spanish disease or something. Yeah, that's something I've learned today. I didn't well, I encourage people <laughs> to Google it because I, I may have completely mangled yeah. the facts, but all I can tell you is it didn't exist in antiquity. Yeah. I was just thinking about, because I remember reading one of the Medici family, I think had, I think it was syphilis. Mm. And then because of it, he then wore like a, a mask, I think, or like right. part of his face with a mask. But oh, yes, it's a terrible illness. Yeah, yeah. but it's interesting how... I think in like the modern world, I suppose with like things like superheroes as well, like the idea of people, somebody being attractive wearing a mask, if that makes sense, the kind of having the mask. I don't know if I'm I've got a rambling slightly here, but you know, like the idea of somebody, like when you watch a film and people are like, "Oh, Batman's so attractive," or "Spider-Man's so attractive," but they're actually wearing a mask. Yeah, I mean, like kind of the character is kind of it's because you can't see their face, but because of the kind of personality or their stature or whatever, mm. like it's 
It's in, I mean, just in terms of like ugliness and attractiveness, the fact that you're always going to have part of that that's related to personality and deeds and, and you know, what the people achieve as well. I don't yes. know if that affects like people's perception of whether or not somebody's ugly as well. Well, there's a certain mystique, isn't there, to a person mm. whose face you can't see. The Phantom of the Opera is another yeah. kind of semi-romantic hero. Masks are a really interesting topic because they can be really unsettling. Yeah. Um, but, of course, there's lots of different types of mask. In fact, the masks of superheroes tended to be quite minimal, you know, because of the uh, uh, the unsettling nature of a completely covered face yeah. until the likes of um, Spider-Man and, and, and Iron Man. But at first, su- think of Superman. Yeah. Um, has no mask. In fact, he has less on his face than, than his alter ego, Clark Kent. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yes, but um, if the eyes are covered, then that can be... That could be a little bit uh, spooky. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Well, again, I suppose it shows the changing kind of changing norms of, of what's kind of deemed acceptable in, in terms mm. of appearance. I was just going to say uh, the uncanny valley uh, dictates that if it's entirely unhuman, like for example Iron Man's helmet, then um, it isn't that unsettling. But if it's slightly off, like the the eyes are without pupils or with cat's pupils or something, then that's more disturbing because it's almost human, but it's, it's wrong. Yeah, I watched a, a YouTube video the other day, which is a rundown of 10 like most disturbing films from like the first half of the 20th century or something. Do mm. I do it in my spare time? Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, there was, there was one of the films and there was a very well-known film, which is the film Freaks, which came out in like the 1930s. Oh, yes. Notorious. Yes. Yeah. I think it was banned uh, in some places. There was another film in there, and I can't remember what it was called now, and it's going to drop me nuts. I'm going to have to look this up again later. But it was about a scientist mm. who his daughter is like really disfigured. So he's trying, he's trying to find, so he like kidnaps a woman, and he's basically going to try and transplant that woman's face onto his daughter. But his daughter in the film mm. wears one of those basic plain white masks. You know, you get like from like uh, oh, yes. a kid's shop yeah, and they can paint shops, over it. Yes. Yeah. So they, yeah, she wears that. So, but you see her eyes, obviously, in it. And it, it is very disturbing because, as you say, yeah, because it's a human like face, but Ooh. very, very, very plain. And obviously, just white. But then the, the eyes behind it, it it's a strange, it's, it's, it's yes. very unsettling yeah. to watch. There's exactly the same thing in, um, now let's see, it's the Tim Burton Batman movie with Michael Keaton. Mm. Um, and uh, one of the Joker's. Uh, associates is a, a woman who has been disfigured uh, mm. and she wears a mask really like that um, and that's really unsettling in fact uh, I forget the name of it but a couple of years back well probably many years now there was a children's program which was these bears and the bears had full furry suits it was live actors um, and, and and masks but um, they had just had little eye holes so the, the eyes were looking through and uh, apparently it was really unsettling and, and they had to change it because um, the children were so disturbed by the human eyes inside the bear's face. That's going to... The, the banana splits or something like that, was it? Or uh, Might be. I'm like trying, to, th- I'm trying yeah. to think. I remember watching a show on like Channel 4 or something mm. early in the morning when I was younger. It was like one of those kind of era of like the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. I think it was like run by Hanna-Barbera. Did like Yogi Bear and Flintstones and stuff. Mm. But yeah, but it was live action people like in suits, like animal suits. And yeah, the same because there's something very expressive about eyes. Oh, yes. I, like eyes can do an awful lot and say an awful lot yes. to somebody without, even if you can't see the rest of the face. But I think because of the rest of the face is missing, maybe there's that kind of sense of that you're missing part of the message. I don't know. I'm just kind of freestyling at the moment. But it's a really strange. But it is. It, is it could be something like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's something about the fact that. Mm. Eyes communicate something, but it's without any other facial features, which is perhaps what it feels like you're only getting part of the message. It's like, I don't know. Yeah, yes, I don't know. yes, the uncertainty. Yeah. That could be it. 
Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a bit of the model of the uncanny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we talk about that at the beginning of the monsters module usually in the first week. Um, just different concepts like grotesque and uncanny. Um, and what else? Pollution, abject, abjection. These are all theory, um, terms that have been used by critical theorists. And um, we just sort of look at some scholarship and figure out what they mean by it and then think about what we mean when we use these words. Yeah. Um, it's a good place to start. I'm currently pondering whether or not Darth Vader would be much more scary if he had like just a plain mask where he saw his eyes underneath it. But he's iconic enough. We don't need to worry about that. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, actually, he's a great example of a villain with scars. So when you do, in fact, see his face, he's quite, you know, uh, injured. And um, and there are so many films where the bad guy has a scar. For example, The Lion King, the bad guy with the scar, who's called yeah. Scar. Um, so fan of the opera as well. Although he's kind of, I suppose, is he a bad guy? I don't know if the Phantom is a really bad guy or not. It's well, a bit more difficult character. maybe they're tough guys, but they're often, you know, yeah. um, villains. Scarface, for example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, if you think about the prevalence of scars in antiquity, um, because, like I said, if you've got a really unpleasant skin problem or a, or an injury that needs to be healed quickly, then then you do it by branding and could mm. be left with significant scars. I think that, well, I don't want to get into too much um, detail, but scars in ancient Rome matter very much depending on where they are. So you can have honourable and dishonourable scars um, and showing scars on your chest shows that you've faced the enemy and suffered for your nation uh, and been a, a good soldier. Um, that's very honourable. And so in a way, those are beautiful, or admirable uh, scars. But if they're on your back, then you've either run away or been flogged. Mm. And that's that's very bad. Um, other ones, like on the face, you have to know what the story is. Um, but that's very interesting. Mm, yeah. So, is it the idea of with the bad guy being scarred as well is there an element to it where that's kind of a physical manifestation of their bad character do you think is that kind of part of it as well i think so yes there's a lot of traction in every culture for the idea that good and beautiful are the same thing um and therefore bad and ugly or disfigured um but it doesn't always work that way so you can be too beautiful or too attractive in a you know in a inappropriate way um, or should I say too uh, pretty or too um, um, gorgeous. So if a person, especially in ancient Rome, spend, uh, if a man uh, takes too much care of his appearance, that's bad. Um, and uh, if he is, if he's got a bit of ugliness that's a, a masculine ugliness, um, then that's usually okay. And there's a story about, I think, Vespasian, the emperor, who is, um, has some... Uh, officer of the army come to speak to him and um smells like perfume mm-hmm. and um and he says i'd rather you smell of garlic and that yeah. would be peasant food and obviously unpleasant because of the you know strong odor but it would be a uh, more appropriate for him and therefore more kind of attractive in a way yeah um, but gender is a yeah a really big part of how ugliness works in a culture yeah. And uh, that's one of the reasons why it's interesting to look at the differences between then and now. Not that we can agree on what's ugly now. <laughs> no, I, mean, yeah, well, I, mean, I guess that's what, what we're saying is that it's still just very subjective of time, place, and, and the individual that uh, you're asking. But it's, yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's, yeah, you can go down, well, demonstrate, I suppose, there's a lot of different avenues you can go down with it when you're yes. thinking about it. Yes. I've been describing it in a very undisciplined way. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But kind of looping back around, actually, um, I was going to say, because the superheroes bit would have been a good segue, but uh, yes. your, your big kind of passion research-wise is, is gaming. How how did that cross over? I mean, because one of the things I'm actually quite interested about is where somebody's kind of interests outside of academia meet their kind of research. And that seems like mm. a very obvious one where there is a very strong crossover, because I'm guessing you don't just play computer games for the sake of research and then never in your free time. But obviously, as I say, you've, you've kind of got this crossover going on. How did, how did that all kind of come, like what sort of drew you to the topic of thinking, oh, there's like a lot of things that turn up in video games related to the ancient world and let's explore this further. How did you kind of come to that? Oh, right. Well, that's very easy to explain. Um, it started in 2005 when I had a conversation in a pub uh, with a guy called um, Miles, uh, Miles Levan, who's, um, I think now it's in Andrews. And he made a very good point in response to me complaining about um, reception studies. So it seemed a bit um, frivolous from my point of view to look at how ancient Greece and Rome had a legacy in different media in later times because it's a very large um, subject that lets you talk about almost anything. And it seemed to me that um, it wasn't really classical studies, and um, it was just an excuse for people to talk about things that interested them, mm. um, as if it were really about classical antiquity. Um, but he, he talked me around, and one of the things he pointed out was that um, if a person has two competences, if they know about um, the ancient world, but also something else which interfaces with the ancient world has been influenced by it or in some other way um, is relevant to it, um, then if they, can, if they can talk about that interface, then that's very valuable. And I realised that very few people, in fact, now that I think about it, almost nobody at that time had ever talked about the fact that ancient Greece and Rome appeared in lots of computer games. Mm. I hadn't really realised how many. And having studied it ever since then, I've got... Uh, records of, of hundreds and hundreds of games which are either set entirely in the ancient world or have a very strong element of it. And um, I forget when I actually started publishing on it, but I was I started off by giving talks and um, yeah, realised that I was pretty soon um, best placed to to study it and tell people about it. And there have been lots of work on film and TV and other things, opera. Um, novels, all kinds of other media, um, some of them very highbrow. And I thought, um, this might be something that has been considered to be unworthy of studying. <laughs> and if somebody tells you that something's not worth studying um, because they're not into it, then that's a very good reason to show them that it is worth studying. Um, so that was part of the motive. I was going to say, just quickly on that note, have yeah. you found doing this, as, have you met much resistance in academia? Do you, have you come across people that have gone, oh, that's not, mm. this isn't really academia, this is just, you're just <laughs> playing computer games and talking about it? Like, I'm that... sure lots of people have said that. <laughs> um, not so much to my face. Um, I think early on it was particularly likely, and it was because there hadn't been much work on it. Yeah. But now there's more awareness, and, and furthermore, there have been more high-profile games. It's possible now to talk about AAA video games, which are basically the big budget almost the hollywood of computer games yeah, which didn't well, really exist yeah. if you go back far enough well i mean gaming now is is, is at that level isn't it i mm. mean there was recently what's the game that's coming out it's got keanu reeves in it which had like a real kind of big fanfare surrounding it i don't know if you saw that oh uh, it's a one word title but i forgot what it was yeah i saw that got announced and they announced the avengers game which mm. i thought looked absolutely atrocious i've got to be honest 
I, 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 I love Marvel. <laughs> sell, I, I saw that, and I was just yeah. like, "Oh my god, this looks so bad!" Like, I don't know, I don't understand what's going on there. But, um, mm. but yeah, so, um, so you, so you, you play obviously a lot. Then I in have, your, in, in I have your, played lots. Yes, I've got a whole lot of free time now. Yeah. I do still play games and enjoy it. Well, I mean, is it one of those things that you were saying because you kind of built up this kind of catalogue in your of, of games, all these yep. references to the ancient world? Yes. I mean, so in terms of of gaming, then are you somebody that just plays, you know, the major consoles, or are you also kind of into this whole kind of world of essentially people basically, I suppose, making their own games now. Very kind of indie scene, maybe that's the way yes. of putting it. I recently went to the exhibition at the V&A that was on games. I don't know if you saw that. It was on not. Christmas. Uh, there was some stuff there about like major games, like The Last of Us. But then there was also a lot of stuff there about these much more kind of indie games. Like they're not these, you know, you're saying like you're getting games out there increasingly cinematic and like lots of money pumped into them. But there also seemed to be a lot of these games which were very simplistic in their ideas Ooh. but actually people engage with them and, and get very much hooked on them like there was one where i was just watching it and it was like this little figure that you're controlling you're just trying to get to this light in the distance and it plays this kind of soothing music while you're doing it and you go across like the terrains like vary from level to level and that's all the game is but it seems to be quite successful because it just it's very kind of relaxing for people to play and it's just this whole idea that I suppose in, ga- in our minds we think of games as stuff like, I don't know, it's just me about games, I think of like FIFA and GTA and that sort of thing. Yeah, and these very kind of, say, like very big cinematic, like these big franchises. But then there's also this kind of appeal for games that do a lot of other things for people, like calming them and such. But but yeah, so to kind of go back around to my original question, are you kind of into all that stuff as well or is it mainly... Yes, all um, kinds of games, absolutely. And it, the um, the world of games development is diversifying all the time. So not only are they really big franchises, like, for example, from our point of view, there's um, Assassin's Creed. There's Assassin's Creed Origins, which was set in Roman Egypt. There's mm. Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is set in classical uh, Greece in the 5th century BC. So we're talking uh, the Peloponnesian War. And um, and then you were mentioning some announcements recently. I think this must be from E3, the, the major uh, place where things get launched. Um there's a game called uh, Gods and Monsters coming out, which is um, actually from the developers of the Assassin's Creed games, but it's going to be a, a bit more, uh, I think, young person friendly and uh, a bit lighter in its visual style. And it's all about mythology. So uh, you play a character who is traveling around locations like uh, Elysium and fighting okay. harpies and other uh, mythical beasts. So... Um, yeah, the the ball is still rolling. But then at the other end, indie games are really uh, fascinating. And some of them are actually very closely um, engaged with antiquity because sometimes people that make them are are experienced in mm. uh, in classical studies. Just thinking about the last couple of years, a uh, famous indie or small-budget game came out by the name of uh, Apotheon or Apotheon. And it was a... Uh, 2D action role-playing game, kind of a platformer, but the visual style is like a black figure vase. And um, it's really beautifully done. And for example, when you get very heavily injured, you start to see cracks uh, in the, in the kind of the vase. And um, the, uh, another example is a game called Oklos, which means um, the mob in ancient Greek. And that has been compared to a sort of retro 2D, um, Pikmin, because you you build up a swarm of characters, 
and you have to have a philosopher because um, you're fighting against the gods. Um, but you can have classical heroes. You can get uh, Heracles in your in your mob, um, or you can get various other different um, people from different walks of life, and they go around and they they battle enemies, and um, it's sort of cartoonish, but in a way quite uh, carefully researched. There are there are even simpler projects. There are individual um, games makers who just do um, something very simple at a game jam and um, make it available. And uh, I think it's great. And maybe the future is that people will be able to use um, game development software to uh, make whatever they want. In fact, something I'd like to do, I don't know when it will come together, uh, would be to teach a module about um, video games and the presence of ancient Greece and Rome in them. Wow, that'd be popular. With, <laughs> I hope so. But with some kind of assessment that involves either playing um, a custom game or making one. Oh, and wow. Yeah, I think it would be... I think we're reaching that point. Yeah. Because there are lots of fantastic free pieces of software to, to make games. Yeah. When he was on the podcast, me and Christopher talked about... Nowadays on like, on YouTube, like you have these YouTube stars that are massive and the way yes. they do is basically sit there and they play games and people watch sure. them play games. Mm. And we were saying that it would be great to do a, a thing where lecturers, like you play like Total War or something like that. Do you, do you ever see the t- series Time Commanders when that was on? Yes, I did. Um, yes. But doing that sort of thing where we were like, you could play a game and then as a lecturer, you could basically narrate what you're doing, like talking about it in terms of the kind of historical attributes of it because one of the things i was going to say and the word i kind of avoided there was accuracy when you're looking at this stuff are you that bothered about the accuracy stuff <laughs> i mean because I, I don't know because with a lot of this stuff to me it goes without saying that it's not going to be entirely accurate it's more about i'm presuming the themes and the aspects of the ancient world that it draws upon and how it does that and why it does that than rather than just saying oh that's not exactly how that is or whatever yes um the way i usually put it is that authenticity and accuracy um, are interesting but it's not just about judging whether things are accurate because like you said um, you can take it for granted it's not going to be fully accurate it's not um, even what we do when we study the past has to be imperfect because we don't have all of the evidence Um, if a person's portrayal of the past is not accurate it doesn't make it uninteresting personally I'm fascinated by the the malleability of ancient themes and how mm. what strange forms can appear when you uh, when you reinvent them and um, I think it's important to move past the question of whether it's authentic um, to the question of uh, what form has it taken and why so how has it been changed for entertainment purposes how has it been changed for an audience that doesn't have a great uh, familiarity with the subject matter and um, on the other hand, there are games which are marketed very much to people that do understand the subject matter and have, um, you know, expect a great deal of, of research to go into it. And in fact, that is to some extent true of the last two Assassin's Creed games, but I'm thinking mainly of strategy games like Rome Total War, as you mentioned. Um, it's interesting to see how there are all these different gamer audiences and they have all different tastes mm. and to some extent, it aligns with genres, but not always. So it's really about why um, the game's designers and players want it to be a certain way. And I'm not sure that there's a theme that links all of my research interests together, but if there were one, it would be looking at cultural material going from one culture to another uh, and changing completely for the new context. Mm. Because I think it's amazing how, how that happens all the time. Yeah, I've tried to 
recently I've been trying my hand, uh, just on a side note, trying to write something on the reception of Mithras in like 20th century literature because it's in the work of Kipling, Rosemary Sutcliffe, and then there are like various other books. And even like recently, like Neil Gaiman's American Gods, uh, Mithras gets referenced in that at one Mm -hmm. point. So he comes up a lot. So I've been very interested in that about what sort of themes are is it used in relation to, which I've just been finding very interesting. Oh. It's not actually about the obviously original cult itself, yes. but how is the idea of Mithras and his cult actually used in, mm. in these, um, in, in these, in these examples of literature? Because you say there's obviously, but there's, there's an intention to use it in a certain way. Yes. Um, it has a, you know, it has some sort of, there's a reason behind it. It's not just simply they take it and they just dump it in for the sake of it. Like, I mean, okay, maybe some of it is to authenticity uh, when they're writing to make it seem like this is really taking place in the Roman world. Mm. But it often seems to me there's a slightly kind of deeper meaning to it than, than just that. Like, it's chosen for some sort of reason. Um, although maybe I'm just seeing things that are actually there. Who knows? Um, no, I'm sure there are fascinating things to say about it. I'm not sure I can think of much scholarship on it. No, and, um, I've never really come across anything. I mean, obviously, yeah. people talked about like Kipling and to some mm. extent like The Eagle of the Night by Rosemary Sutcliffe, but just how it came yes. up time and time again yeah. uh, interested me. Well, there's this game called Legion and it had a, an expansion. Uh, it was a strategy game and an expansion with a number of fantasy elements, for example, undead soldiers. And uh, one of them was, uh, I think, uh, soldiers who were, you know, a fantasized cult of Mithras. Mm, so yeah. the soldiers of, uh, of Mithras were one of these supernatural units you could have. Because yeah. I had a look online actually about that. He does turn up in, or well, the name Mithra or Mithras mm-hmm. comes up in a number of games. But obviously, people like get attracted to it as well. I think mm-hmm. because of the mystery cult idea, and it's very secretive, and these yes. aspects of like light over darkness, and yeah, it's, it's interesting how people have adapted it. One thing I was gonna, on a different note, I was going quickly going to ask was, did you ever play any of the kind of the city builder games? Like there was Pharaoh, there was Zeus. Yes. Uh, the Caesar was the most famous one. Yes. I love those games. They were, they were so great. Like, yeah. I think that's probably one of the things that had an impact on me growing up that I ended up doing ancient history as well. I used to love those games so much. Although yeah. in Pharaoh, I never made it to actually build a pyramid. It just <laughs> took so many materials to actually build it. But I love those games. They were fascinating. Hmm. Um, yes, I have played some. It's probably not one of the genres that I've played the most, but I do really find it fascinating. Hmm. And um, Asian empires as well. I have to mention Asian empires. Sure, that's, that's yeah. The... <laughs> and civilization is another one that's still going very, very strong. As uh, one called Settlers. Um, yeah, lots of different franchises. And it's interesting how they actually develop like a, um, a core demographic mm. that can sustain n- numerous sequels. Very often, um, people really do love them, and uh, and they're still coming out. And sometimes it's just city building. Sometimes it's in combination with exploration and combat. Mm. Um, there's been some really interesting work on how different cultures get represented in that type of game, especially when they're in conflict okay. or mm-hmm. in competition, because you've got to say what what the core nature of that culture is, what its values are up to a point in a very simple way, and then um, whether it can compete with others and on what terms. Um, yeah. And so you get all these counterfactual histories that result from unexpected conflicts against uh, nations that never actually went to war. The, um, the city builder thing, I guess, is also counterfactual because you're never going to build this city as it was or any particular yeah. city. But, um, it's interesting to see what targets you have to reach. So what's the whole, what's the point of 
a civilization. <laughs> yeah, no, it is like because you have to like think of all those things about commerce and trade and diplomacy, and I mean there isn't that kind of no end to it really. You just go on and on. Eventually, you just hit a point where you're like, I'm bored now. Like you know, mm. you, your city's grown as much as it can do, and you don't know what else to do with it. But yeah, no, it's it's interesting. When Christopher was on the podcast, we talked about this as well. The, the big one for both of us was is Skyrim. Um, ah, yes. I'm a big fan of just the, the Elder Scrolls in general, but fascinated by the whole kind of, you have the Imperial Legion in that, which is clearly based off of the, the Roman army. Yes, uh, in high fantasy, you sometimes do get a kind of coded Roman Empire, you know, yeah. like the Romulans and things like that. But I always found it interesting that you start off and you can choose to be any kind of race that you want in it, and or gender as well, and you can just... Yeah go off and join the Imperial Legion, but you can do other things first. But it's a very interesting way of looking at, you might say, discrepant experience, the the idea that the Romans, or particularly in this case, what makes up the Roman army was just a uniform group of people. Um, mm. The fact that you can pick up you know, stuff in the game and use it and wear certain armour and, and join the Legion, or you don't have to join the Legion to wear Imperial armour, you can wear it just because it's quite handy to have. It's very interesting how that can, I think, is quite a good way of demonstrating, as I say, like, that idea of discrepant experience as opposed to, you know, things like romanization. I think it's just quite interesting how games can make you think or can be used to make people think about these things in slightly different ways. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And just going back to this idea of having a a story about a family or a few people in a in a language learning course, it's good to have a medium that makes you kind of engage with the minutiae of everyday experience. Because we tend to think of it, the, the traditional way of regarding history was about great men and great battles mm. and turning points. And in fact, what most people find when they um, when they study a historical period in detail is that most people had you know social lives which were in some ways very strange, but in other ways very familiar. And um, and you've got to think about what people ate for breakfast and um, how far they might walk in a day or where their values might lie. And uh, if you have a very rich story world, then you can get down into that detail, and that's where it gets yeah. really kind of immersive. It's funny though; we uh, keep going back to previous episodes. But when Andy Gardner was on the podcast, we talked about oh, games yeah. and being used as uh, experiencing, like basically getting to that point where you can experience living in the past. But then he raised <laughs> the point of like it would be interesting to have a game where you played as a Romano British farmer. But probably after a few <laughs> a little while, it might get quite tedious uh, <laughs> because then you suddenly realise it. So there's that kind yes. of interesting thing about where games kind of draw the line. And with, I mean, this goes back to those questions of authenticity and accuracy of, you know, they can't be actually entirely authentic and accurate a lot of the time because they were, they might not be so interesting because yes. you have to deal with it because they're about escapism. And a lot of the time, I think with escapism, people don't want to deal with that kind of minutiae of like everyday life. They don't yes. want to be like, I've got to go tend my field for the day. That's it. That's all the game Absolutely. is. Like, yes. I mean, that could be quite fun in a certain way, but if you have to do it in a really realistic way, and then you're like, oh, I've got to go to Verulamium and pay my taxes now. Like, it's maybe that's not so attractive as, you know, joining the Imperial Legion in Skyrim. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Going back years ago um, to Shenmue, which is the first oh, I really... Uh, I never replayed really it, 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 it. It professed to be the most, you know, uh, thorough, immersive world that had been made. And later in the game, you can get a job in the docks and you can show up to get your paycheck um, and you, you get your forklift and you move some some crates from one place to another. And it is very tedious. So <laughs> um, there are other ways to make money in the game, but um, that's the one you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, And also, if you want to um, become a good fighter, because there are some fight scenes, you just have to practice a move 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, and if you keep doing it, keep doing the combination for hundreds and hundreds of times, you will get stronger. But it's very incremental. And it was um, an attempt to inject realism. The same thing was done recently with um, Red Dead Redemption 2, which has some... Oh, still not finished it. I've had it for ages and I keep thinking about it. That's perhaps well, why. Like, it's... One of the objections for it was that it was too realistic. Yeah. It takes too long to get to places. Yeah. And there are too many random things that can really um, mess things up. A number of times I've been killed by somebody like knocking me off my horse. Like I'm going too fast yeah. on the horse and then a carriage pulls out and then boom. Because um, actually things like you have to make sure the horse is clean, you have to make sure that you're clean or otherwise exactly. people react to it. The horse it. might get shot randomly and then all of your training is gone. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yes. I'm, so. still, I'm still at the bit, like the bit where you've just gone through the storm and wound up on the island where you have to... Uh, there are like slaves on the island, and it's all uh, that. Yeah, I'm not going to go too, no spoilers, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm just like, my god, this game's going on forever. Um, but I don't know, I've, I've just got a short attention span nowadays. Maybe I need to well, keep there are other genres of game, yeah. That are much quicker. I, still go, I still go back to Skyrim, I still go back to Skyrim, can't, can't stop playing Skyrim. Well, um, they succeeded, and then, yeah, and then Hilda Scrolls 6 at some point as well, which I'm excited yeah. about. Um, but you better book out some a few months, <laughs> yeah, 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 oh, yeah, oh, can't wait. Don't think about the hours. Yeah, a couple of years away yet, though, I think. I don't think it'll be, it's not going to be anytime soon, is it? Mm. Okay, so just moving towards finishing up, then, because we could talk about this. I was thinking about yes. like you could literally do a podcast just on this, on this topic. Like, yes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, is, have you got anything, basically, you'd like to sell at all in terms of, like, anything you want to <laughs> advertise? I mean, I saw that you've got a YouTube, well, there is a clip on YouTube where you did a talk at Interactive Pass Conference. About it was done, yes. Say, yeah. Well, I could just say I've submitted the written version of that to the edited volume that they're going to have coming out, Return to the Interactive Past, and I think that'll probably be out later this year, and it will be available most likely um, to everybody in, in PDF or free, and you can pay, of course, for a printed copy. And um, there are going to be some really interesting contributions to that. So Your one was on beat-em-ups? Kind yeah, of, uh, fighting games. Fighting games, yeah. When you were growing up, what was your preferred one, just out of interest? Oh, I mean, because you've oh, got street, been so many. street um, Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Tekken. Did you, did you have a preferred one? Mortal Kombat, um, definitely. And Soul Calibur. Those are my two favourite beat em up franchises, I think. Yeah. yeah I, I love Tekken growing up. I got well, I got to about three or four, and then I sort of kind of left it. Um, but uh, Yes, yeah. they're up to, I think, six. Yeah, yeah. Another franchise that'll go on for seemingly forever. Probably. Um, yeah. <laughs> also, anything else as well, then? Um, any other publications or anything else you want um, to No immediate plans. I'm giving a talk in December in Exeter at a conference on animation technology in antiquity. So, okay. um, automata and things like that. Oh, nice. So that'll be interesting. And um, I think that's all that I want to mention for now. Okay. Uh, yeah, but I do encourage people to think about ancient Greece and Roman video games because there are lots of examples, and most of them have not been given the attention they deserve. So it's fascinating too. You're on social media as well, aren't you? On, on Twitter, um, Twitter, yes. Yeah, you post like odd things, like things on there to do. With it's a place of trivia, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I suppose people just chuck it into that Google machine, and they can find you, find you on there. If they yeah, want. it's um, at Ancient Play, and there are some other interesting people to follow as well, working on the same stuff. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Fatality. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. 
The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. <laughs>